Hey, thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. So a little while back, I I sat in an emergency room uh, waiting to see a doctor, and I wasn't there at my own will. It was it was my wife Nicole. She was worried about my head, and I didn't injure it. I was just like forgetting a lot of stuff more than usual, losing train of thought, and I uh, had some other symptoms that were kind of worrisome. I guess I don't really remember. She just told me to go in, and uh, it turns out I'm fine. I'm not crazy. Just a little unwell. I know right now you can't tell. You're singing the song in the head. Aren't you a Matchbox 20? It's pretty good. Good song. Um, anyway, I'm sitting in the ER waiting to test my head. And on one side of me is this girl who's hacking up a lung. And on the other side of me is this guy who's sleeping. At least I hope he was sleeping. And sat there for just like a couple hours. And finally, I couldn't take it. It's like, let's, let's just get this testing done and, and go. So I channeled my inner Karen. And I went up to like the head nurse, you know, at the desk, that grumpy nurse that always sits there. I was like, all right, what gives? Like, can we just test my head so I can get out of here? And right as I was asking her this, a man having a heart attack was rushed right by me through the doors. To which I said, okay, never mind, I get it. Like, take him. I'll go sit next to Rip Van Winkle again. And that grumpy nurse, though, taught me what this word is right here. Triage. Where you take the most urgent pressing case first, right? The guy with the heart attack should have precedence over the idiot who can't remember much. It's like, triage. It's a great practice for hospitals. However, it's a terrible practice to live by. For example, tomorrow morning, Monday morning rolls around. You and I are going to wake up. We're going to have this task list of things to accomplish, right? You have like jobs to do and people to connect with and things to buy and events to plan and staff to talk to and kids to keep alive and deals to make and dates to go on. And our natural instinct is to look at the list for the day and then triage. Let's take the most pressing one first. To add to all of that, there will be fires that you're going to have to put out this next week. People are going to be popping into your office. You're going to have pop-up meetings. If you're a student, you're going to have pop quizzes. There's going to be problems that you have to solve on the fly. There's emails that are pouring in, phone calls that are coming in, and texts that are coming in. And so to survive, we triage. So let's just take the most pressing first, and then we'll kind of work our way from there. And that makes total sense. The problem is, and deep down we totally feel this, though we haven't really connected this. The problem is, is how often are we missing out on the important things the great things, the things that really matter in this life, we're missing out on all of that because we're spending our energy and our focus on all the little urgent things. I think they call that the tyranny of the urgent. Some of us are spending our lives on the tyranny of the urgent. And it's human nature. In fact, it's so human that Jesus himself confronted a girl for triaging her life. And the way he does it, it doesn't necessarily sit well as we're about to see but that's because we all triage our lives as well. This text right here, I have read this text so many times. We have done this text before at the bridge a few different times. Every single time I read this, whether as a church or personally, it stretches me, it challenges me. And I believe that Jesus's words today will realign many of our lives in a powerful way if we are open to his conviction. I hope you're ready. We're gonna be in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, I encourage you to grab a Bible. It's page 869 in the Bibles in the chairs. Otherwise, I know a lot of people use their phones or their tablets. It is far warmer up here than I thought, so I'm gonna take my jacket off, feel like Mr. Rogers. As you turn there, 
Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Let me pray, and then we'll just jump right into this. God, we do thank you for your word. And may you remind us of the weight of this moment right now. I think it's safe to corporately confess right now, Father, that so often um, we don't realize the weight of this moment. We gather together with brothers and sisters to hear from dad. What a special thing. We get to do this. And so, Father, you will speak today. I ask that we don't fight off that conviction, but that we humbly lean into you in submission, submitting to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we enter into Luke chapter 10, we find ourselves on the outskirts of Jerusalem. There's something about this view. Even Jesus himself just loved this view, like the special city below. Like this is the city that King David had a general of his sneak through the water system to conquer. Like there's so much history in the city, but also so much future significance. It's a city that scripture says God himself will descend from heaven to, that that has yet to happen. So there's like so much history in the city, so much future significance. It's a city that one could stare at for a while the busy marketplace and the Roman fortress and the steady stream of pilgrims coming up the mountain to visit the city. All of it though, eclipsed by the magnificent white and gold temple that is towering on the mount. The ancient historian Josephus called the temple, it was like a diamond set in a ring on top of the mountain. And the Mount of Olives is like the perfect place to view it all. And it's this scenery that Jesus and his disciples can't help but drink in as they commute across the hills to the little suburb of Jerusalem called Bethany. Their feet ache as they hike the incline. And it seems as though their bellies, though, compete with their feet as far as what aches more. See, for the last two days, they've only eaten what they could carry, which isn't much. And so each man, as they commute along the ridge, each man is hoping, dreaming, that the home that they stay in tonight, wouldn't it be something if they had a meal prepared for us? And if anyone could pull off a feast for this group of hungry men, it's Martha. And her home is right on the other side of the hill. And Luke brings us in, verse 38 says, now as they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, went on their way, Jesus entered a village. Now again, we know this village to be Bethany. It's a little community right on the other side of the the Mount Mount of Olives. It's a perfect place to live because you have like this small town feel. Everybody knows each other, all the neighbors, but you also have the benefits of the big city just down the road. You have like big business, you have security in case you're attacked, a bigger marketplace. It's all just a short walk down Uh, down the road. And it was here where Jesus would often say when he came to Jerusalem, he would either camp out on the Mount of Olives or he would stay with his buddy Lazarus in Bethany. Uh, Some commentators actually, and this is something I learned this this week, that some commentators, um, they talk about how it was Jewish tradition during this time that um, when you would go to visit Jerusalem, you would always stay with the same family for generations. So it's very possible that this house would have been the house that Mary and Joseph would have taken Jesus to when he was little as they would go to visit Jerusalem. And here Jesus is as a 30-some-year-old man coming to visit Jerusalem. It says, And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary. As they approached the house, there's three faces that Jesus could not wait to see. of Lazarus, one of his best friends, and then his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus had a lot of foes. And if you're in any sort of like leadership position, whether it's, you know, like a boss or a ministry leader, you will have foes. You're gonna have people who don't like decisions that you make. 
You're going to have people who don't like the attention that you get. You're going to have people who they want your job. And so they're going to always try to detract from you a little bit. You know what it's like to have foes. Jesus had many foes. Jesus had many fans, people who just wanted a piece of Jesus, wanted a story of being around Jesus. Jesus had a few friends though. And these would have been those friends. And it's this setting that Jesus was probably looking forward to. It's a home away from home. It's a private place with just his friends. Kick back, relax, unwind, let your guard down. You have a place like that? You just kind of like to retreat to, it almost feels like as you approach there, it's like everything, the, the busyness of life just kind of melts away the closer you get. Up at our camp, there's like a little corner at our camp. It's like one of my spots, just kind of tucked away. I love to sit by the fire with family, sometimes with some friends, just kind of let the guard down, enjoy the stars, the, the, the sounds of coyotes, you just kind of decompress, you kind of feel tucked away from it all. Maybe you have a spot like that, like a cabin or a campsite or, or a lake house, something like that. This was that place for Jesus. Because just down the road, you have chaotic Jerusalem. You can almost see it from here. You can see the lights from here. Big city, crowds, lots of critics, a city where he'll die. But here he's just kind of tucked away. He's hidden from all of that. He's staying with friends. And these two girls, Mary and Martha, they wanted Jesus to feel like their home was an oasis where he could just kind of recharge his batteries and feel like it was home. It's a very, very special gift that Mary and Martha give him. If you look at the end of verse 39, Luke tells us that as they come into the house, Jesus sits in the living room and teaches and the disciples crowd around and one sister, Mary, sits at his feet. You see that? She sits at his feet. It's just this posture of humility. It's a posture that's very difficult to take sometimes. And just gonna learn with a heart of humility. Many, and I've, I've struggled with that before. Like many struggle with this. I just wanna, you know, if we hear something, we wanna kind of wanna critique that. But Mary listens to glean what she can. Very, very special girl. And Luke is trying to get us to picture the scene. He's inviting us into the story. The sun has set over the little mountain town, inviting the star-speckled sky above. Oil lanterns meticulously placed throughout the house provide a calm, dim lighting to this full house. And Jesus is sitting in the living room and he's having just great conversation. But in the next room, Martha feverishly prepares the meal. She's stirring the pot. She's stoking the fire. She's setting the table. She's fluffing the pillows. And she's probably freaking out internally. Like, I better not undercook a meal. I can't give Jesus food poisoning. What if I kill Jesus with my cooking? What happens to the universe then? Right, sorry guys, no salvation. Martha undercooked the chicken. So you know she's like, she's just riddled with anxiety. She's preparing, preparing the meal, scurrying around. Then you have Mary, her sister, polar opposite, sitting next to Jesus' feet in the living room, laughing and listening. If Mary and Martha, sisters, very different. You have a sibling who's maybe very, very different from you? I see a smirk. Like, it happens, right? That's Mary and Martha. It's very, very different. Martha's the to-do list checklist girl. She's the girl in school who would like race home to get her homework done early, you know, so she could work ahead on the next bit of homework, maybe take on some extra credit, do an extracurricular. And then there's Mary. She's more of like the social butterfly. Like she's just, she's a girl who's just a good hang. She's a great hang. She's chill. Wherever the wind is blowing, you know, she's going. She's an in-the-moment type of girl. And so you have two sisters, very, very different. I love this because it reminds me of my own kiddos. Same, same way, very, very different. And it's fun to just watch them. It's fun, Actually, it's fun to watch them in school. My oldest and my youngest are a bit more like my wife. Very, very busy, really want to do what the teacher says. You know, they have their planners. Everything's planned out, and they really care about getting good grades. And then there's my middle child 
who Nicole calls little junior. Just very different. She's more free spirit and, and she'll do it by feel. I took them to school the other morning and the other two had already gotten their homework done. And I look in the back and I see Nora, my middle child, just like doing her homework on the way with a highlighter. And so I, and she said to me, I was like, you know, are you okay? Is it okay to do it with a highlighter? She goes, no, dad, you know, my teacher wants me to use a pencil, but like, this is pretty. And that's all I have. Plus I know it's her favorite color. So she's going to be fine with this. Like, all right. Well, you know, get it, girl. The other two are just mortified. How could you do homework with a, with a highlighter? It reminds me of Nicole and I. Nicole and I, our freshman year in college up in, up in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, we, we took classes together. And my wife, she's awesome. Like, she can just knock out stuff like, like, like nobody's business. She's like three projects ahead on the syllabus. Like, she's way ahead, getting great grades. I, on the other hand, I would call her on my way to class and be like, hey, I'm late to class. Can you turn in my homework? I did it over breakfast. Do you mind? I'm just going to send it to you now. Can you turn it in to the professor? It's just kind of funny how God, you know, puts families together, isn't it? Very, very different personalities kind of collide into one family unit. It's a blast. And I bet you have the same in your family. That's Mary and Martha, just very, very different. And I think here it's like, like a good time to just like take a time out. I just want to ask you, which way do you lean? Are you more like Mary or are you more like Martha? Are you Martha very task driven? You got to get it all done, making lists. And then you almost get like a high after you check something off the list. Like, oh, that felt great to get that off. And then sometimes, come on, you know, you do this where you're like, I did something, but it wasn't on my list. I'm just going to add it to the list. So just so that I can, you know, check it off and get that. You know exactly what I'm talking about because you're Martha and it's not a bad thing. It's nothing to be ashamed of. We need Martha's. Team Martha is fantastic. I married a Martha. I love her energy. It cracks me up a lot of times. Or are you more like Mary? More contemplative, quiet, kind of read situations. You play things by ear more. And sometimes you feel guilty because your Martha friend just kind of leaves you in a cloud of dust sometimes. No team is better than the other. A good organization, a good church, a good company needs to have both Mary and Martha's. See, without Mary, an an organization full of Martha's would do a lot of stuff, but like not the right stuff. Without Mary, nothing would get done. Everybody would just be dreaming and reading and, and visualizing the next step. So the Mary in you can be an asset. The Martha in you can be an asset, but they can also be a liability. So those of you who are more like Mary, you got to sometimes force yourself to like, okay, no, no, no. I got to make a list here. I need to plan this. I need to make an itinerary. And you have to force yourself to stop envisioning and actually do it. And those of you who are more like Martha, you can easily get caught up in all the projects and the flurry of activities that you lose sight of the big picture as to why you're doing what you're doing. And so Mary or Martha, who are you? If you're looking at this going, "Eh, I don't know. Let me just tell you who you are then. You're Mary, okay? You're, You're Mary, you're married because Martha's in here. They, they knew, like they were ready to raise their hand. Oh, that's me, my Martha. Yeah, they were ready. This is like the longest they've been sitting still all week. In fact, they're trying to listen to me right now without adding stuff to their mental checklist for this next week. And so Mary or Martha, just for fun, this is in your notes. It says, hello, my name is, I want you to write down who you lean more toward. Are you more like Mary or more toward Martha? Who are you, Mary or are you Martha? Well, people who say the Bible is boring, they 
they're not reading it right because this next part is absolutely gold and and so relatable. So remember, Martha's cooking up a storm and she's setting the table and she's stoking the fire. And if you know Martha, you know if you know people who are like Martha, you know that in the kitchen as she's doing everything, she keeps looking over at Mary like, "You can get over here and you're gonna, you, you're gonna help me." And she finally hits a breaking point and and she says what's ticking her off, but she doesn't say it to Mary. She says it to Jesus. Verse forty, she says she went up to him, Jesus, and said, "Lord, do you not care?" Huh, that's never a good idea to say to God. Do you not care? I wonder if Jesus thought, no, I I care. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to atone for your sins. I care. I care about your eternal destination. I care about you not going to hell, Martha. I care about one day when you stand before God, what you're gonna say. I care enough to go be slaughtered for your sin. Thanks for the muffins though. Here she is serving Jesus because she loves him, but now she's starting a fight. And this is very, very common with families. I bet you're guilty of this. I've been guilty of this, but sometimes we do this with our family. We wanna bless them. So I'm gonna clean up the house. I'm gonna make dinner. I'm gonna do a project. I'm gonna take them on vacation. I'm, I'm gonna do this because I love them and you have the right heart. I wanna show them love and I wanna serve them and I wanna grow closer to them. But we fluster ourselves with the activity of that project that we're gonna take on, the trip that we're gonna take on. So much so that we spend the time we're supposed to be blessing them just snapping at them. So instead of blessing the family with a nice dinner or a nice little trip, it's become a curse because we fluster ourselves with all the activity that we got going on and we're all edgy. I reprimanded my daughter the other day for that. She, um, there's some toys that we had to, the girls had to pick up. And so I, I said to her, I said, hey, why don't you pick it up for your sisters? And who knows, maybe there's some eternal reward in that. Why don't you just bless them and pick up the toys for your sisters? And so she's like, okay, I'm fine, I will. But the whole time she's like flustered, like, oh, why would you leave this here? Oh my goodness, you're so messy. I said, baby, any ret- eternal reward that you are going to earn, <laughs> you're losing with your tone. You meant to bless, but right now you're just cursing. That's Martha. I want to do all of this stuff because I love you, but I'm missing the meaning of the whole situation. She says, come on, Jesus, don't you, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to come and help me. So instead of blessing Jesus, they make Jesus a referee to a fight. That's a curse. I would rather be hungry than listen to a fight. She says, but the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Troubled there is the Greek word thorubazo, which translates as distracted. You're distracted. Martha, Martha, you're stressed and you're distracted. You're doing all of these tasks, but you're missing the meaning behind those tasks. See, the brilliance here of Jesus is striking. So often we miss what Jesus is getting at. And Jesus is doing what he so often did here. He's trying to get Martha to zoom out. Martha, Martha, you're worried about the muffins and the silverware. Three years from now, you'll have muffins and you'll have silverware. You won't have me. And so what if you just enjoyed me right now? Parents of little ones, I'm including myself in here, just preaching at myself right now. In 10 years, you'll have a clean house. It's gonna be great too. I can't wait for that. It's gonna be great. In 10 years, you'll have a clean house. You won't have little ones. In 10 years, you'll have an opportunity to tack on overtime and take on that trip and work that golf game, but you won't have the opportunity for forts that night and coloring. The moment's now. Don't let the tasks of the day draw you away from the hyper-focus 
that, be, and that makes you become this taskmaster. Because one day you will get to the end of your list. There's no more, no more things to check off. You will get to the end of your list. The house is clean, but it's empty. You were able to, savings account has numbers, but the number of your days are few. All of these tasks, these little flyers distracted you from the lives that God called you to live. This is what we call unhealthy stress. So here's the thing is we're supposed to feel stress. Stress is a, stress grows us. I told my daughter this the other night at dinner. She's just like, oh, I've had a long week. I was like, babe, you don't know what a long week is. Like you just wait for a long week, you know. But, but she's like, oh, I've had a long week. It's like, well, good. Because you're supposed to feel, I don't want to raise snowflakes, by the way. So it's like, good. I hope you feel more stressed next week. But it's just like going to the gym, right? You're supposed to stress your body so that you can get better, so that you can grow. You go to the gym to stress your body. Low capacity people never, they always run from stress. They run from hard conversations. They run from difficulty. So very little just overwhelms them all the time. No, no, we're supposed to feel healthy stress. What's happening here with Martha though, is she's experiencing unhealthy stress. And here's the difference. Unhealthy stress is behavior that doesn't align with our values. It's not in your notes, but it might be worth just noting. Behavior that doesn't align with our values, that is unhealthy stress. And this is where Martha's at. And be fair, this is where a lot of us are at. We're stressed because we got so much going on, but a lot of what's going on isn't really in line with what we consider important in this life. And so we'll say things like, you know, I value family, but our behavior, the time we spend, the, the, the discipline, the lack of discipline, the tones we take, it, it, it's the, the snapping, it doesn't show that we value family. And so there's this disconnect between our behavior and our values. Or we'll say things like, well, I love God. Hey, I'm a, I'm a, I love Jesus. But our behavior, we don't stretch ourselves in serving and sacrificing. We don't submit. And most things take precedence over worship. And so there's this disconnect. And it's in those moments where this unhealthy stress begins to take root in our lives. And so we're doing so many things, but we're like really ineffective with what we're doing in our life. And so we see here, Martha wants to serve Jesus. She values Jesus, but her behavior of being flustered and busy and she's stressed, it's unhealthy stress to the point of she wants to start a fight now with Jesus. Don't you care? See, she's you in an area of your life. She's me in an area of my life. And here's the thing with all this. Sometimes I think Martha can get thrown under the bus. I, I've, you know, I've heard people talk on this text before and sometimes we can study this, we can read this and, and you know, we'll say things like, oh my goodness, Martha's just an unha unhinged spaz, right? So application for the text, don't be an unhinged spaz like Martha. You know, that's, that's the application. But Jesus doesn't do that. He's simply trying to get her to calm down and refocus. Part of the reason that Jesus is able to relax right now, and he knows this, is because of Martha's work. Like it's probably a stretch for Martha to have Jesus over because of what needs to get done. It's part of why she's freaking out a bit. You'd be the same way. If I told you after service, if I said, hey, a few of us, we're gonna come over to your house uh, tonight for dinner. You'd be like, oh my goodness, well, I gotta clean the bathrooms and I gotta, I gotta wash the sheets and I gotta, I gotta get food. You know, you'd be freaking out internally. That's, that's where Martha was at. And, and Jesus knows this, knows this, so he's not scolding her. You know, Shut up and settle down, Martha. My goodness, you're annoying. He doesn't do that. No, this isn't, I see this more of an arm around the shoulder. Martha, Martha, it's gonna be fine. You're trying to do so much and you are missing out. I don't want you to miss out. This is a loving thing for Jesus to say because if you think about it, think about it in the whole grand scheme of things. Right now, Martha's in the presence of God. Martha's in the presence of God right now as we speak. 
And looking back 2,000 years ago, I'm sure she's not reminiscing, thinking, I still can't believe I burnt the bread and the candle wax dripped on Jesus' placemat. You know, she's not doing any of that. That doesn't matter now. No, she's thinking, it's pretty cool that Jesus was in my house. And it's pretty cool that I was his friend. That was the important. And I wonder if what Jesus says to Martha, if he's saying the same thing to you. Hey, you, you're distracted. Refocus, it's fine. You're fine. Kids are fine. Work is fine. It's gonna be fine. Sometimes we need to do that with each other. Just calm down. It's gonna be okay. Take a deep breath. You're freaking out right now. And as you freak out, you're missing the moment. You're missing the now. And the now is so precious. Jesus continues on. He says, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. Good portion. That's a bit curious, isn't it? I've read this word like good portion. I've heard people kind of explain it, but it never really made sense to me. I can't remember where I, uh, where I read this, but, but, but I love this. Here, here's what I think. What has Martha been doing this whole time Jesus has been talking? You know, she's been measuring portions. She's thinking, okay, Lazarus is gonna get a chicken leg. Mary's getting the feathers because she ain't here. And, and you know that she's gonna serve Jesus the good portion. Jesus is gonna get the chicken breast. And so she's been measuring, measuring portions and getting ready. Classic Jesus speaks her language in the moment and says, Martha, 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 I know you're trying to give me the good portion and make sure it's cooked well and served beautifully. And that is so sweet. But I'm trying to give you the good portion. I'm trying to give you time with God. You wanna serve me and that's great. I appreciate that. I'm relaxed, I'm good. But you're missing the bigger portion that I'm currently offering you in this moment. You are so distracted. Mary here has chose the good portion. I'm not gonna take that away from her. Story hits so hard. A few takeaways from this text. Number one, be Mary first and Martha second. Be Mary first and Martha second. So if you wrote down that your name is Martha, be Martha, rock your Martha, get it all done. God gifted you with efficiency and filling holes and knocking out projects, do it, rock it, that's awesome. But foster your inner Mary as well. First things first, let's focus on the meaning. Doing a lot here, but am I doing the right things? I think it was John Maxwell who, who said that um, people who accomplish out of a list of 10 things, let's say you have a, a checklist of 10 things for the day, people who accomplish only the top three are far more successful than the people who accomplish the bottom seven things on their list. That like rocks my world when I read it. I, you know, I usually got my list and I'm like, yeah, I've noticed that. When I get seven things done, but at the bottom, I, I feel like I didn't get what I needed to get done. Top Top three, doing a lot, but like not getting the right things done. And let me just stop and say this because I know how this can easily work. People who are lazy and selfish can listen to a message like this or read a text like this and go, oh, well, I'm Mary. That's, that's, that's why I don't pitch in around the house. Call me Mary. I'm the holy one of the house. No, 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 come on. Mary's not chugging a six pack watching football as Martha washes the dishes. Mary is spending time with Jesus, the reason for the work. Mary isn't lazy, she's centered and focused. First things first. Some people are neither Mary nor Martha. They're just unfocused and lazy and singles just stay away from dates like that. Mary first, Martha second. Here's the thing, you were designed biologically, I mean, there's studies been done on this. You were designed to have this Mary-Martha rhythm. You, you get with God, you know, you step back, you get with God, you be filled, then you go and you do. Stop, reflect, see the big picture, and you go knock out the next thing. You are, you are most efficient when you're in that rhythm. Rest in God, attack. 
Rest in God, you sprint. Life's not a marathon, it's a series of sprints. You were designed for that rhythm. I thought of this the other, last week. I, it was really dumb of me. I went to a boxing gym just because it was like, it's been a dream of mine to like box. I just want to box once. And then the George Foreman movie came out on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it all. It's freaking awesome. I watched it. like, oh, I got to go box. So I went to this gym and I just got, I got beat up bad. It was terrible. I don't know if I'll go back. Um, but as I'm at the gym, you know, they're, they're teaching me like all this boxing stuff that I still don't understand. But the whole idea is like you're in the ring for three minutes, just like pounding things out. And then you step back into the corner of the ring and you're like resting and trying to refocus and figure out what's the next game plan. That's exactly how we were designed to have this Mary Martha rhythm where you're, you're a Martha, you're attacking things, but you're also stepping back, being filled and, and refocusing, getting the bigger picture. So be Mary first, Martha second. Number two, separate immediate from important. Separate the immediate from the, the important. I would even, I would even uh, advise this. One of the things I do in the morning, in my morning prayers, I pray through my calendar. Like, you know, I got this meeting, I got this task, and I, I pray through it and I try to surrender it to God. One thing that I would advise is in your morning prayer, your time with God, try to, try to figure out and ask God, what's immediate here and what's important? What's the most important thing on this list, God? What do you really have me going after today? Separate what's immediate and what's important because they're not the same. We tend to give our time and our focus to the immediate because we're, it's needed now, it's gotta get done. And some of us love feeling needed, especially Martha's, just love feeling needed. The problem is, is the immediate can, all, can often take you away from what's important. I felt this last week. I messed this up and I still feel bad. I was, uh, I was dropping the kids off at school and I volunteer at their school. I think I've told you this before, but I like, at their school, I helped take preschoolers out of the car and the kindergartners out of the car into their classroom. I don't know why they chose me for that job. I thought I was gonna be directing traffic and um, you know, like I pop into the back seat, kids freak out, long hair, beard tattoos, you know. And so I brought stickers. I try to give them stickers now just so that they'll like me. Now I'm just like that guy that mama tells you, like, don't take candy from him. I had no joke, this actually happened on, on Friday. I went into like I opened the door and the mom puts her finger up and goes, mm, no. What do you mean? No. She's like, I'll get them out. I was like, okay. <laughs> anyway, um, this one day I was late to volunteer and uh, pull into the parking lot and I jump out of the truck and I told my kids, run into school. Daddy's got to get to his post. And as I'm running to my post, I see my three little ones running behind me to give me a kiss goodbye. And in an annoyed way, I said, okay, fine, but I got to go. I only have a few years left of little daughters needing to kiss daddy goodbye. That's the important. But it was the immediate that made me completely forget about what's most important. Immediate is not always important. If I'm having dinner with my family or if I'm out on a date with Nicole or something like this and I get a call from a staff member, I'll kindly ask, is this important? If it's immediate and it can wait, we're gonna wait. And we'll talk about that tomorrow. If it's important, then I'll step away. But just because it's immediate doesn't mean it's important. And so often the immediate takes us away from what's most important. You know what I think? Look, when I read this text, you know what I think? I think Jesus missed Martha. And I've been there before. You know, you see like an old friend, you're like, I just miss hanging out with him. He's just so busy. I can't ever get with him. I think that was Jesus in this moment. I think in Martha's frenzy, Jesus just missed her. He wanted her to sit down. He wanted to connect with her. He hadn't seen her in a while. He wanted to talk. He wanted to connect. He wanted to catch up. Like, oh, Jesus appreciated the hospitality and the cooking, and he was grateful for all that she was doing, but I think he missed Martha. And perhaps he misses you. 
Perhaps Jesus wants you to take your focus, the hyper-focus off the to-do list, the sports, the functions, and he wants you to refocus your time on him and his community, the important. Like, let's remember, Jesus didn't need Martha. Did Jesus need Martha cooking in the kitchen? No. He fed 5,000 people with a Lunchable. He didn't need Martha's frenzy in the kitchen. He didn't even need her to calm down and sit with him. But he wanted her. He loved her. He invited her. Come on, settle down. Let's just talk. Let's, let's laugh. Let's have fun. Let's catch up. Then we can go and check off all the boxes. But Mary first, Martha second. Don't let the immediate take you away from what's most important. And then number three, don't make your routine your idol. If you're on my email list, I sent an email about this um, on Friday, and it was my bad because I thought this email was going out later. So some of this is going to be, if, you're, if you do read my emails, this is going to be like, you're going to hear this for the second time. Just take it as a reminder from the Holy Spirit that you need this or something. I don't know. But I love my routine. I love my routine. I, I usually wake up around 4.45. I wake up early so I can get some time for myself and time with God and work out, all that. And then I'm home um, by the time, you know, kids wake up and then make breakfast with, with Nicole. And it's just like your house, anybody with kids, right? It's like clean up after breakfast and make beds and get ready. And by the time 7.30 rolls around, I feel good. I feel like, man, we've really attacked this day well. I hate it, though, when there's a hiccup in that, in that routine because it throws my, whole, throws my whole day off. You get a flat tire, it happened to me last week, drove over a screw. And now my whole routine's on. Now I gotta move appointments around to get my truck in to, to get it fixed. Or the kid gets sick and now we're cleaning up more. Or I didn't sleep well last night, so I got up a little bit later and now we're really behind. Or my goodness, I, I live in Displain. So you hit a train, it's like, well, that whole routine is out the window. And so some of us, we live and we die by our routines. For some of us, the quality of our days are determined by how much we were able to control our routines. Our routine is a source of comfort. And it's a major focus on us. And it's something that we can't let go of our routine. It's basic idolatry. It's like, oh my goodness, skip the morning coffee and we're on edge. You know, mama didn't get to enjoy the kid's nap time. The kid's bedtime dragged out ruining Netflix and chill time for mom and dad. You know, a broken routine makes for a bad day, doesn't it? However, when you look at scripture, when God does something great and he moves, it's often out side of a routine. It's through a broken routine, actually. You think about Moses, when God calls Moses. Moses was in the middle of his routine shepherding, but God broke that with a burning bush. When God appears to Mary, Mary's in the routine of getting ready for a wedding. God busts up that routine with a baby. You could go on and on. God, for whatever reason, loves to do things and direct us outside of our routines. The problem is, is that when you and I, when we are outside of our routine, we tend to freak out, don't we? Ah, this isn't like what I had planned. And we're freaking out in the very arena, the very space where God often directs. I, it's one of my favorite quotes. I've shared this before, but G.K. Chesterton, who's one of the most brilliant writers, he wrote Orthodoxy, which is a, just a great book on apologetics. Whenever I read his stuff, I always have to read it like three times just to understand it. Just very deep. He was friends with like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And yes, I find pictures of these theologians smoking a cigar for a reason, because when people get mad at me for smoking cigars, I can just point at the spiritual giants and be like, well, they, they do it as well. But G.K. Chesterton wrote, he said, an adventure is only an inconvenience rightly considered. An inconvenience is only an adventure wrongly considered. He uses the illustration, so old school, but he uses the illustration, if you're at a train station and the train comes by and it blows your hat off and you have to run toward your hat, most men are embarrassed but some see it as a game, just a fun adventure, trying to catch your hat. It's just a fun old illustration. 
But some of us struggle to connect with God and experience God in, God in, in fresh ways because our eyes are on the idol of our routine. We're so driven by tasks and lists and routines that God check off the boxes for today. And God says, you need to be more like Mary. Be okay with a broken routine. I invite you out of your routine into a fresh space where you can experience me in greater ways, but you won't see me much if you're hyper-focused on all the little tasks that you came up with for the day. Last Sunday, I was walking home from church with my girls and um, we were talking about Sabbath because they're like, oh, dad, what are we gonna do? It's Sunday, what are we, what are we gonna do? And I said, well, it's Sabbath, so we're gonna relax, we're gonna rest, just kind of enjoy each other as a family before Monday rolls around. And my oldest asked, she said, well, why is resting so important? Like, That's a great question. We talked about this in our Sabbath message, right? That God rested on the seventh day as an example for us. Like God is God, doesn't need rest. He's setting an example. God tells Israel, I, I will go with you and you will find rest. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Like, my daughter's question is a good one. Why is rest repeated so much in scripture? Because this is where the rubber meets the road with our faith. When Jesus shouted from the cross, it is finished. What he really meant was, it is finished. It's done. Your identity is not in what you do and what you accomplish. Your identity is not how much you've been able to pull off and what you're able to triage in this life. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. And it's in him that we find rest. Oh, there's still plenty that he calls us to do. Christians, we are to work hard. We are to bust it. But it is finished is still true. The cross of Christ means that we are first Mary. We rest in him. We draw meaning from him. We focus on the important, him and his kingdom. And that's what drives us, not our little man-made routines. And so a major test of our faith, especially for the Marthas in here, is can I trust God to leave my routine that I've built and follow him somewhere else today? Do I want the importance so much that I'm okay with sacrificing my routine to follow God's leading? A major part of following Jesus is resting in the, it is finished. All that I do is not all that I am because I'm in Jesus and Jesus finished it on the cross. And so I can rest in him. And it's in him that I'm pulled from this hyper-focus that I tend to get as I live life. I will surrender my routine to follow his leading because he is important. And I won't let the immediate distractions of the day take me away from this beautiful relationship that he has called me into. And so this whole, this whole series of simplify, it's not some like catchy self-help phrase. No, this is biblical. This is a command from God. I was at, I was at some friend's house like two weeks ago. Um, my, my kids were playing with, with their kids. I went to go pick them up. And actually, I really look up to this family, just good friends. I look up to them because they're really good with just being very intentional. They're not like overly busy and crazy. They're just very, very um, intentional people. And so I look up to them in, in that regard. And, and when I went to pick up my kids from their house, as I was picking them up, they said, hey, Junior, just want to say like the Simplify series has been like awesome for us. Like we really needed that. I'm like you guys, like you guys, I feel like you guys are better than me at that. How, you know, how is it that this is good for you? And they said, because one of our greatest challenges, spiritual challenges is holding on 
to this life that God has called us to. We're not gonna take the bait everywhere in the world to, to, to busy ourselves with all the lesser things. That's really hard for us. This is the life that believers are called to. We cannot afford to live any other way. We are called to a quiet simplicity and it's there that we find the power of God to live a life that is far greater than anything we could come up with on our own. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.